Good morning, Christ Church. We are uh, at the beginning of the story of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. We started last week with this year-long study that we're going to be doing in the Gospel of Matthew. And like most stories, this one introduces us early on to the main characters of the story and his family, to Jesus and his family. Matthew gives us what you might call here the origin story. Many great tales start with an origin story. In fact, the very first words of the gospel say, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. If it were translated literally, the word is Genesis. And you remember last week, it started with a genealogy, which has the same root, genealogy and Genesis, the beginning. The origin story begins with this kind of like macro picture, looking at the genealogy and, and all of the ancestors of Jesus and so who is Jesus? Where does he come from? What's the origin story? We're going to start way back after many, many, many generations passed and bring it up to the present. So you got this macro picture, and then Matthew telescopes into the micro story of the origin of Jesus, the literal conception and birth of Jesus, and a brief sketch of his parents. So today is an introduction, you might say, to the holy family. That might be a phrase that You've heard before the Holy Family referring to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. All three are introduced in our text today. Matthew and Luke both give us this origin story. Um, Mark and John, not so much, not in terms of the details of the birth. John starts with in the beginning, and that Genesis that it goes to is all the way back to Genesis 1, and even starts that gospel with the very words that start the book of Genesis, in the beginning. But here in Matthew, we have a little bit of detail. Um, Luke gives the most detail about the birth of Jesus. But Matthew, second most, and his concern here is primarily to introduce the circumstances, the supernatural circumstances of the birth, and gives us this story a little bit through the perspective of Joseph. You've seen some of the images, perhaps, or iconography by this artist. I, think, I know Father Matt has shared one with you before, but look at this one of the Holy Family. Uh, I think this is a really interesting kind of contemporary take on the Holy Family. Jesus was born into a makeshift shelter. So you know the story, I'm sure, that they were looking for a place to stay, and all the hotels and the traditional places to stay were full. They ended up in a kind of makeshift shelter place not really meant for human dwelling. And so if it were to happen today, it might look something like this. And we're going to spend some time getting to know each of these three people that we see at the center here in the, this holy family, at Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. We're really just going to scratch the surface today with each of them. But we begin with Matthew verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So he starts the introduction to this holy family by basically, it's kind of like a chapter title to the birth story. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Being pledged, pledged to be married, was as binding in that culture as marriage. The official ceremony would be another year later after the betrothal began. And it's a little bit like our engagement, only in the sense that there is first a commitment and then a ceremony. But that's where the 
similarity ends because a betrothal or an engagement in that day like that was as binding as a marriage. So if you were going to end a betrothal, it was a divorce. It was considered and processed like a divorce. It was that, uh, that serious. So they were betrothed and they had not come together is how Matthew tells us to make sure that we understand that there's no reasonable or natural explanation for Mary to conceive. So Mary and Joseph, they're betrothed. They've not come together yet. And yet, and here's the phrase, and yet she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This is a delightful and kind of artful phrasing of what must have been very confusing. She was found to be pregnant. And you can hear even in that phrasing of it, uh, there's a bit of mystery of like, how did this happen? (laughs) She was found this way. She was, this just occurred and there it is. How is that possible? And he says it is through the Holy Spirit. And there are allusions here, and we want to learn throughout our reading of Matthew to pick up as much of these allusions as we can to the Old Testament. Um, But there are these allusions here to the beginning and the creation of the world. Matthew calls this, again, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. At the creation, you have the Holy Spirit in the first Genesis that brooded over the waters. Remember that. And here again in this new creation of the second Adam, there's this brooding over Mary, the Holy Spirit hovering over the person of Mary like the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at the first creation. One commentator describes this scene as the Holy Spirit brooding over Mary's waters. I think it's just a beautiful description. I mean, it's a very earthy description. You think about the water, the waters that break, you know, in the the process of contractions and and, uh, birth, delivery, all of that, that here Mary has the Holy Spirit hovering over her waters just as the Holy Spirit hovered in the beginning of creation. So next, the scene shifts to Joseph. Matthew tells the story more from Joseph's perspective, whereas Luke gives us uh, more Mary's perspective on the whole thing. So it's as if you know, that the camera is, is kind of from over here with Joseph and how he's seeing what's happening and how he's experiencing what's going on. So we're going to talk about Joseph, and, and we'll call him Joseph the Righteous, because that's how he is portrayed in this story. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, Joseph would have had every right to do just that. It's what everybody would have expected. They're betrothed. His wife is pregnant. He has never been with her. And everybody would expect that what would happen next is that Joseph would proceed with the divorce, which would have been a pretty public uh, process. So he is a righteous man. Notice that because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Um, and other translations will say thing because he was a holy and righteous man or because he was a righteous man, he is unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. And he plans to divorce her like everyone expected to, but not the way everyone would expect him to, with an open proceeding and a trial 
and her being very publicly shamed and disgraced. He does not want to expose her to all of that. That word, because, is huge. Listen again. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, because of that, he had in mind to do it all very quietly. It's because he's righteous that he does not shame her in her supposed sin. Now, remember, Joseph doesn't yet know what's going on. At this moment in the story, he does not know why she's pregnant, how she got pregnant. He is interpreting it like anybody would. It's a natural, reasonable explanation, and he knows he's not responsible. So he seeks to hide what he thinks is her sin. There's a kind of protectiveness here of her, even in his feeling of being uh, injured or even betrayed. Why? Because he's righteous. He's faithful to the law of love. Love God, love neighbor. That's the law. He says he's faithful to the law. Love demands this of him, that he not shame her in what he believes to be her sin. So he's going to go about it quietly. We're told elsewhere in Scripture how love covers a multitude of sin. And this stands in direct opposition with the way in which some of the self-righteous Pharisees oppose Jesus. How they think of righteousness, compare, contrast Joseph and his righteousness here and how he handles the situation to the Pharisees who think they're righteous and how they handle situations. The Pharisees who drug out the woman caught in adultery and wanted to stone her, a very public shaming. And Jesus, Joseph's son, Later at that moment, when Jesus is at that moment where the woman is caught in adultery, Jesus, the son of Joseph, said, let him who is without sin pick up the first stone. And as I was reading this and preparing this, I had this thought. I wondered, what if Jesus in that moment where the woman caught in adultery and he says, let the one without sin pick up the first stone, what if Jesus knew the story of how his father had looked out for his mother when she was supposedly... Uh, caught pregnant before they were married, even when he thought she had been adulterous. What if Jesus knew that story about his father? And so it's a remarkable act by Joseph here. He doesn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. He plans to send her away quietly so that she's safe from the shame of having become pregnant. Now, he could have exposed her to public disgrace in an open trial it would have been publicly, he would have been publicly vindicated. His reputation, his reputation would be protected because if he doesn't divorce her, people are going to assume that it's his baby. If he divorces her, then they'll realize, oh, it's not his baby and his reputation is vindicated, but hers is not. So Joseph will lose his own reputation by not divorcing her. Now, the smart thing to do in terms of self-interest is for Joseph to divorce her, keep his reputation, and then he also would have gotten his dowry back. That would have been the smart thing to do in terms of self-interest. This is why Matthew says, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, so there's this, this, this description of in what ways he is righteous in this moment. But if he sends her on her way, 
which is his plan before he knows the full story, send her on her way quietly, then the shame is on him. He loses his reputation. He doesn't get his money back. So remember, this is what's going through his head before he knows the whole story. It's the picture of the kind of person Joseph is and how he's a righteous man in the way he considers dealing with Mary's supposed infidelity. Now, notice verse 20. Just when he had resolved to quietly divorce her and protect her from public shame, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Now he's going to get the rest of the story. But all of this has already gone through his head. He's already been processing what to do and how to handle the situation. Verse 20, it says, But after he had considered this, everything I just said, after he'd considered that, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God saves. You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. So that's Joseph, Joseph the righteous. Now let's shift and look a little bit at Mary the God-bearer. We'll call her today. Joseph the righteous and Mary the God-bearer. Mary says yes to God in a way that no human ever has or ever will. There's a deep connection between mother and child down to the cellular level, a devotion, a loyalty, a love that's fierce to the end. It begins in the womb, and for Mary, it ends on the cross. And that love and loyalty and devotion tracks all the way through the story. Mary, the God-bearer, it is well depicted in this next icon I want to show you. And um, it's Mary as the burning bush. Just take a moment and look at that. Notice different aspects of it. Mary is filled with the fire of God and not consumed by it. It was at the burning bush that Moses, the first Moses, encountered the living God who spoke with words to him and revealed himself as I am. Here, Mary, who's the mother of the new Moses. Remember last week we were talking about this Jesus is the new Moses who has these five blocks of teaching, a new Torah. So here's Mary, mother of the new Moses. She is the burning bush that holds the flame of God who's revealed as the Word, who describes himself, Jesus describes himself with I am statements, like I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. One theologian describes Mary, who is pregnant with God, this way. The center of the universe is the womb of the virgin where there already dwells the Holy One sent by the Father. The deepest vocation of the world and of society is to become the divine vessel that the Virgin already is. She's the archetype of a redeemed creation. Creation aflame 
with the glory of God and yet not consumed. There's another image that you might have seen before that helps us into um, understanding Mary as she's depicted through Scripture. Father Matt once shared this here, and you might have seen it before, of Mary, the mother of our Lord, and Eve, the mother of all humanity. And here, the first Eve and the second Eve meet each other, Mary as the new Eve. Here they encounter each other in this kind of imagined Uh, this imagined encounter, we see a picture of God's mercy towards sinners. Mary is comforting Eve. One hand touches her face as an act of comfort, kind of a human-to-human comfort. But that's not enough. She takes Eve's hand and puts the other hand and places it upon Jesus. For the comfort that comes from him, the mercies of a holy God, a divine comfort. This kind of depiction of all sinners everywhere that can know both human comfort and divine comfort. The love of God. Mary is more consistently present than anyone else in the Bible. Present to Jesus. Present to God. To the life and purposes of Jesus from carrying him in her womb to staying near her son as he was publicly humiliated and executed, she's there. She's there for all of it. She's there for the birth of the church at Pentecost when he sends his spirit. They're in the upper room. She's there. She does not leave his side. And she illustrates kind of the most uh, admired quality One of the most admired qualities about her is her surrender and trust, no matter what, to Jesus. Through all the joys of life and with him and the sorrows of life, through the terrors, through the pain, she never runs away from it. She always moves toward and stays with him in it. Staying present to Jesus through the mysteries of life, through life not going according to our plans, especially... It's easier said than done, but she does it. And I know for many of us, if we look at our lives at this stage and we think back maybe to when we were, uh, let's say, just coming out of high school or early 20s, and um, if you look back and you think, did my life go exactly how I thought it would? Did I see this coming? Is this the way that it was all mapped out in my mind? And I don't think there's a one of us who would say, yes, it went exactly like I thought it would. And the challenge for us is when those curveballs come and all the things that are unexpected at the trials of pain is to stay near to Jesus through it, even through the confusion, through the mystery, through the sorrow, not understanding what's going on. I doubt that Mary fully understood what was happening at the cross as her son was publicly humiliated and executed and she stayed right there near him. While others abandoned him, she was there. There's a call, this merry call of total trust and surrender. And to ourselves, be aflame with God. That the fire of God, that the shining light of God would be upon us and through us. So we have Joseph, Mary, and now just the beginning of an introduction to Jesus, 
uh, with an emphasis this morning on him as the incarnate Savior. And we're going to be coming back again and again to both the incarnation and salvation that Jesus brings. Um, Jesus, the incarnate Savior, is already evident right here in chapter 1. Verse 22, if you're in your Bible or if you have your bulletin, you're reading with me, you can look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right at the outset, Matthew highlights the fact that this is God with us. This is incarnation of Almighty God. We as humans fall short of the glory of God. There's this gap, this gulf between us and God. And what, what do we do about this gap? Everything within us, every longing, yearning that we have, deep down at the bottom of that longing and yearning that every human has, it can be explained by the fact that there's this gap and this gulf between us and the God for whom we yearn, to see him face to face, to know him in all his beauty, in all his goodness, in all his glory. The deepest longings and dissatisfactions and sorrows of this life come from that place. How do we bridge that gap? And there is the answer, no way that we can go to God. There's no way we can get there from where we are to him. The only answer is that he comes to us. And that's exactly what happens in the incarnation here. God with us. He identifies with us. He's assumed into himself, and this is part of what it means that Jesus is God incarnate. He takes on flesh. He assumes into himself all of who we are, all of humanity. Every last broken piece of us gets assumed into him and his humanity. And as he takes our humanity into himself, then he shares with us, he shares our humanity, then he shares with us his goodness and glory. So there's this exchange that takes place. So that salvation can reach us at the farthest, deepest point of our need, God goes to the deepest, farthest point of our need. That's part of what, how we understand the whole of the gospel as we read through it. It's God going to the deepest places of human sin and brokenness. One of the church fathers puts it this way, that which is not assumed, which means taking up into God, into himself, that which is not assumed is not healed. So if God wants to heal all of it, he must assume all of it, is what it's saying. One of our Christmas carols celebrating the Feast of the Incarnation has this refrain where we sing, far as the curse is found. Now, just that phrase, far as the curse is found. Anybody know what hymn it is? Joy to the world. I heard it. There we go. Joy to the world. And this is the news. This is the good news of glad tidings. This is the gospel. This is this is the news of joy to the world that as far as the curse is found, that's how far he goes. Now, before that refrain in that, in that carol or that hymn, it says, he comes to make his blessings flow. God with us comes to us. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
So this news is joy. It's joy to the whole world. It's the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not about Jesus. It is Jesus. And there's a really important distinction there. It's not about Jesus, as in it's some kind of formulation that we can make, and that formulation is the gospel, because it's about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. After returning home from a long tour, Bono, the lead singer for U2, went back to Dublin And um, he attended a service, and it was a feast of the incarnation. And at some point in that service, he grasped the truth that at the heart of the Christmas story, the heart of the incarnation, in Jesus, God became a human being. And with tears coming down his face, Bono realized this, and he says, these are in his words, the idea that God... If there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw. A child, I just thought, wow, this is poetry. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. This is the gospel, according to Matthew. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to us that you live with us, that you have assumed every last corner of this broken world into yourself, of our sins, our brokenness, our sickness, our pain, our sorrows. You've taken it all up into yourself. And through you, Jesus, we are healed. Would you do a healing work with us as we spend time in this gospel? To heal corners and places of our lives, of our hearts, heal our community, make us a community that is a healing agent in our neighborhoods around the city. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.